science without humanity will never equal quality care. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marion Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on Amplify Nursing, we talk to Dr. Terry Richman, the Associate Dean for Research and Innovation at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Dr. Richman is an accomplished nurse and researcher focusing on improving outcomes for victims of trauma. Today, we talk to Dr. Richman about her journey into nursing, her most recent research focus, and the importance of remembering the humanity in our work. So, Dr. Richman, I am so incredibly excited to talk to you today. We've been working together for a couple of years now, but I don't think we've ever had a conversation like I plan to have with you today. Well, then it's going to be an exciting event, I think. Terry, you are one of the best storytellers I've ever had the pleasure of working with. So I'd like you to start off by telling your story of how you got into nursing and where your career has led you until today. Well, we're talking decades because one of us has been around for a while. I would say how I got into nursing all started when I was eight years old. So it's a long story, but I'll make it short. When I was eight, I had a viral infection. I was given some baby aspirin and I went to bed and I didn't wake up. So I had a post-viral encephalopathy. And long story short, I ended up in the hospital uh, for quite a long time. And by the time, you know, intubated, ventilated the whole nine yards. And it became very clear to me that the key players in the hospital were the nurses. Now this is from an eight year old's perspective, but I fell in love with the concept of being a nurse. I fell in love with what they did to help me get better. I decided at that point in time, I was gonna be a nurse and I never wavered and I never looked back. So what was that concept of being a nurse that you fell in love with? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, Now that I'm not eight years old anymore, I think it was the fact that it was a group of people who made a human connection with me at a time that I was really vulnerable in an environment I didn't understand having things done to me that were not appealing to an eight-year-old. And the nurses made it okay. So it was the human connection in making me feel like a human being as an eight-year-old. It made me believe that I could get better. And how has that experience affected the way that you 
not only practice as a nurse, but practice as a human being? Probably in everything I do. And it's grown and developed over time. I mean, I'm a scientist and I believe in data and I understand science and nursing is a scientific discipline. But I think science without humanity will never equal quality care. So that even I'm a critical care nurse, trauma nurse by background, and even in the most intense environments, we're taking care of people at the most vulnerable times of their lives. We hold people's lives in the palm of our hands. And that's precious. It's profoundly important. And if you believe that, it all comes down to the application of science through a human lens and human interaction. So I definitely want to touch on that more. But first I want, because you have been doing this, this being the profession of nursing for a few decades now. So how did that journey start? So you're an eight-year-old, you go through this pretty traumatic infection. You then decide nursing is what you were meant to do. What's that transition look like and where did you begin? I began in a, in a diploma nursing program. And I, uh, at Thomas Jefferson University actually, and I went to a diploma nursing program. I would say in the, it was in the seven, it was in the seventies, sort of towards the end of diploma nursing programs, but I did it because it was cheap and I didn't have money and I had three jobs the whole time I was in the diploma nursing program, but I loved it. I engaged with people. I learned a lot. Uh, it was formative for me. And as soon as I got out and I could afford it. And when I graduated, I moved to uh, Newark, Delaware and immediately continued for my bachelor's degree. And I worked as a med surge nurse evening and night shift at Union Hospital, Cecil County, which at that point was sort of a rural little community hospital and worked uh, through that. And then I finished my bachelor's and I moved to Washington, DC. I was on a Southern trajectory with the intent of, of getting my master's, which I did at the Catholic University of America. And there I worked full time and my education was paid for through tuition benefits um, from my workplace. And it was also in Washington that I started my critical care uh, experience and worked in a high level trauma center early in the, in the evolution of trauma centers in this country. And it was just fabulous. So how has the work that you started out doing in the trauma unit, how has that evolved over the decades since then? Because your work now as a researcher is focused on injury and trauma. And so I would imagine you've seen quite the change over those years from being a bedside critical care nurse to the work that you're doing now as a researcher. 
it's all tied up into, into one thing. And in fact, my husband always says, you've never wavered from what you care about and what you do. So the working in the trauma center, it was at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, was transformative for me. It was highly interdisciplinary. It was at a time in Washington that there were huge um, violence and gun violence problems. I was there in the era when the plane went down on the Potomac uh, during the Reagan assassination attempt uh, and had exposure to phenomenal colleagues, phenomenal experiences and saw the tragic consequences of man's inhumanity to man and the, effect, and the effects of trauma. And the one, I will say, linking that clinical practice to what I do in research, I had a primary, I had a patient, a primary, we worked in primary care teams who was a close range shotgun wound to his abdomen and a robbery gone wrong. And by all, um, by all accounts, he should not have survived that. So, I mean, he had just a really terrible, terrible injury, but he did survive it. And he was with us for a long time in the ICU. He was in the hospital for a long time and he went home and we were all patting ourselves on the back. We are so good. Like we did such a good job. And he came back, I would say within a month into the unit and was yelling at us. And, and you know, it was like, we're thinking, oh, he's gonna say, thank you. And you saved our life and you're so good. And instead he was yelling at us and he, and what he said was, you saved my life, but I am not healed. And it was like, whoa. And that, that was transformative for me. It was like, at that point in my career, I didn't really think about what happened beyond the critical care magic doors that open, let alone what happened when people went home from the hospital. And he made me sit back and say, what, what the heck happens to people after they've had such a catastrophic injury? Because he said, my family doesn't understand what I went through. My community doesn't understand. My friends don't understand. There's nobody I can talk to. I survived, but I'm not recovered. And at that point, the science was all about, do trauma centers save lives? Well, yeah, they do. I can say that they do. We know that. But nobody really was looking at. So for people who survive these injuries, what happens and how do they recover and what drives that? So my research focus on the recovery component of my research and my clinical practice early on, it's a total continuous uh, pathway. So let's answer his question. What does happen to these patients when they go home or when they're out of the hospital? It varies. So I decided to focus on, even though I had worked, then I worked in neurotrauma, but I decided to focus on 
uh, general trauma patients. So not bad brain injuries, not spinal cord injuries, just but just car crash, gunshot wounds, et cetera, where your brain is still intact and you're not paralyzed. And really people thought we sent you home and you do fine. And yes, your bones are gonna heal, but life will be fine. And the reality is it's not. It takes people quite a while to recover. And it obviously varies, there's individual variations. But I think what the first thing I found, which was really important was, it's not all, physical recovery is important, but it's not the whole story. And the whole story is psychologically what happens to people when they've been through an event that is life-threatening, that can be horrific, that one minute you're fine and the next minute you're not. So what I found is people's, the psychological fallout of the injury is just as bad and in many ways worse than the physical damage from an injury. And that's critically important to know. And when I first started looking, I was looking at post-traumatic stress disorder. And that's what people still look at predominantly, although not solely, because it's a traumatic event, you must have post-traumatic stress. But what I found was yes, post-traumatic stress is a player, but in a, a study where I follow people for two and a half years after injury, and just did qualitative interviews. Um, it, it, well, I actually did both surveys and qualitative interviews, but I, I talked to 63 people two and a half years after injury. And at the end of the interview, I said, is there anything you think I need to know that I haven't asked? Like what, what's important to you that you haven't told me? What, what do we need to know to help better care for people. And the big thing that we didn't find, I didn't see because I didn't assess for was the overwhelming sense of depression to the point where people would say, I can't get out of bed in the morning or I thought about killing myself or I'm just so sad. And I think that made me really sit back and say, it's not just a physical injury. It's not just post-traumatic stress. It's the overwhelming sense of depression. And that depression, what we uncovered in subsequent studies, really worsened functional recovery, the ability to return to your pre-injury function and worsened quality of life or well-being. So much to unpack here. How, how are these patients treated today for this type of mental fallout? I think we still don't do a good job of it. I think it's become increasingly recognized. I think we're paying more attention. We're asked in trauma centers to screen, especially for PTSD, but increasingly depression. But to be perfectly honest, we still live in a, in a healthcare system that's siloed where we have, you know, physical health care and we have mental health care. 
and they tend to be siloed and not fully integrated. So we have uh, miles to go before we rest or before we sleep uh, to A, break down those silos and B, identify people most in need. So one of the, the ways I think about it, you know, as a scientist, you're sort of methodical, right? So first it was people are, you know, not fully recovering. PTSD is a player. Now we're finding depression is an even bigger player. Well, we know depression and PTSD worsen outcomes. How do we identify those people who have the more severe symptoms of depression and PTSD? So then we developed um, what I call a predictive screener. I'm not assessing you, are you depressed now? Or you have PTSD now? But what's the likelihood when, you know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks from now, you're going to have significant depression or PTSD. So you can't give services to everybody. People are out of the hospital before these surface often. You can't, out of 100 people, I can't do everything for everybody. But if we can predict those at the highest risk, then we can start saying, okay, this is the 25 out of 100 that are at highest risk. Let's think about how we now can start screening over time so that if symptoms arise, we can then link with mental health services. And that's the work you're doing now? Yeah, that's evolved over the past 10 years. So we developed a predictive screener in an earlier study that was more minor injury, but you can have minor injury and big time depression. Uh, so they're not necessarily linked the severity. And, you know, publish that and work with that. But now we're, we're taking the screener and we applied it to a, a more recent study where I injured, where I enrolled over 600 seriously injured black men and said, does this work as well on a new and different population? How well does it work? We're just getting ready to publish that. And is there a way to improve the predictability of that screener? So, you know, I have a research background, but now we're doing a lot around human-centered design and design thinking and trying to get interventions and solutions to our patients, community members, whomever, at a much quicker rate. I would think that this type of this type of area would be ripe for innovative solutions to get to the patients who need these types of mental health services sooner. You've been working on this for 10 years. You know, do you see this coming out soon to be able to say, you know, these are the folks who are at highest risk? Let's create these solutions so that we can start treating them. Because as you know, gun violence in this country is on the rise and um, it doesn't look like it's slowing down anytime soon. How do we help these people? Well, so first of all, much of my recovery work is gun violence and other kinds of injuries, right? So first of all, that's not exclusive to gun violence. That's a whole nother topic we can talk about. But second of all, there are multiple people across the world actually who are working on similar areas as me. And I think it's, you know, people are looking, for example, at a stepped care model. 
I can't be all things to all people. I can identify those most at risk. How can we refer people to appropriate behavioral health? How do we work within a system where people have very different kinds of insurance and insurance drives often access? So it's, can we identify it? and think about the right person at the right place at the right time and get people the appropriate services. And how do we make that system work? I think we're making progress in that area, but I don't think we're there yet. Let's talk a little bit about how this past year, the confluence of the pandemic, health inequity, and the push for racial justice has sort of brought on a much more violent year, especially in Philadelphia, than we've seen in a really long time. What do you think accounts for that? So as, as we think about violence, we think, you know, we're talking gun violence, uh, I think. And, and the pandemic, I think, has uncovered an issue that is not a new issue. So we have consistently high levels of gun violence in this country. So to say, yes, it's escalating this year and it's certainly escalating in Philadelphia, but it's escalating on top of a high baseline. So it's not like we've gone from life is really good and now we have a lot of gun violence. So if we look at um, 40 years of data, sort of 1979 to 2019, right? The most recent data nationally that are available, we've had more than 1.2 million deaths in 40 years from gun violence. So I just want uh, people who don't live and breathe this, who are listening to this, to say, this is not a new thing. This is something that is a consistent and ongoing problem in this country. It's an ongoing problem in Philadelphia. It's an ongoing problem, both urban and rural America, that because we live in a society that's chosen to live with so many guns. So that doesn't directly answer your question, but I think it's important that people understand the big picture here. While I do a lot of my work in interpersonal violence, more people die from self-inflicted gun injury every year than interpersonal. And I would love people to really understand that as well. So we see homicide all over the media, but gun suicide is equally, and in some ways, a bigger problem. So it's an ongoing problem. I've worked with gun violence uh, as part of my research agenda for years, um, it's a hard area to work in. Why do I think it's increasing over the pandemic? I, I'm, I'm trying to think of how to answer that. I, I don't think we have the full answer, but I think it's impossible to isolate gun violence and now I'm gonna talk about interpersonal gun violence, especially in urban areas from structural racism, from gross inequities in socioeconomic status, from uh, limited opportunities in impoverished neighborhoods. 
So it's impossible to isolate that from the broader societal pictures. And I, we've seen that play out in the pandemic as well, in terms of not all populations are at risk for contracting or dying from COVID. I, I hope that answers the question a little bit. I think we've now seen, and I guess I would say, nobody wants to get shot. Nobody chooses to get shot. But many people live, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, I don't know if this is a story, but I'll, I'll tell you a wake up moment that I had. So I am, people can't see me, but I'm a white woman with white hair, right? So I'm aging myself and I'm classifying myself. And I would say it came from a lower middle class suburban community. And I always believe that people everybody has choices. And I came to understand that the choices that I have, which may be a mile long, are not necessarily the choices that some of the people I take care of with gunshot wounds have, where my choices are a mile long, their choices may be a 10th of a mile. And so when, I, when I, I came to believe that sometimes I'm making the best choice I can make within the confines of what the array of choices are. And the array of choices for some are very narrow and the array of choices for others are very wide. And this is going back to my um, why nursing and sort of humanity and human connection we need, we need to understand that because I think it helps us reboot the world we live in and ways to think about gun violence as a societal problem. We hope you're enjoying this episode and we'll be back with more in a few minutes after this quick break. People should read Pen Nursing Magazine if they care about nursing, if they care about healthcare, if they want to know the types of things that you can do with a nursing degree. My name is Sasha Degas, and I'm the Associate Director of Marketing and Content Strategy and the editor of Penn Nursing Magazine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. Penn Nursing Magazine is flagship publication for the School of Nursing, and we publish twice a year in the spring and the fall. We're kind of loosely calling this our social justice issue. We really looked at gosh, a whole range of things. Our feature packages three stories and covers everything from the research on trauma and vulnerable populations, as well as the ways in which our undergraduates rallied around the 2020 census and elections. It's been interesting to see the scope of what social justice can actually be and how it relates to nursing. And I think that the feature does a really good job of unpacking some of that. If you want to read the Penn Nursing Magazine, you can go to nursing.upenn.edu. You'll want to go to our News and Events tab, and under there is School Publications. You can either click there and read it digitally and sign up to receive it in the mail. You recently wrote an op-ed in The Hill. Can you talk a little bit about that? I've written op-eds before, and I tend not to write them uh, often, but sometimes things just present their opportunity. 
So um, I wrote an op-ed with a colleague of mine, Eleanor Kaufman, who's an assistant professor, trauma surgeon, who I worked with through her fellowship and uh, when she got her master's of health policy. And when President Biden came out with, we have to address gun violence after one of the continual mass shootings and we have to address gun violence. And this is what I'm going to do today. And this is what, how that's gonna happen. And good for him. He did, I mean, good for him. It was things he could do by executive order. It was things that he could do within the administrative branch. It was things that could be done that um, did not infringe on second amendment rights. And while he said in the opening of his comments, if you listen to his press conference, he identified gun violence as a public health issue. The solutions were all within the criminal justice arena. And that's not bad, but it's not sufficient. So what he did was excellent fun evidence-based interventions for the Department of Justice. You know, he had multiple things that he suggested doing, all of which are doable with a timeline. But as a nurse, I care about gun violence because it injures and kills people. And what my life is all about is how do you keep individuals, families, and communities safe? And criminal justice is one approach, but it's, an, it's inadequate if it's the only approach. So we wrote the op-ed to say, good job, but not enough. And I think, it, I forget what we called it, uh, why President Biden's approach to gun violence isn't enough. I forget what it was called. And instead we said, if you really want to make a dent in gun violence, fund NIH and CDC more. So we know funding dried up. We know that there were restrictions on, on funding uh, research that in any way where the findings could be used to advocate for gun control. A couple of years ago, we increased funding. We Congress allocated, this is the second year in a row, 25 million between two agencies. So that's $12.5 million to NIH and 12 and a half to CDC. That may sound like a lot of money, but it is a drop in the bucket. So good that that was done, but again, that's insufficient. Biden said, I'm giving a billion dollars to the Department of Justice to implement evidence-based interventions. Well, we need to build the knowledge right, to drive those interventions. And we need to address the health issues related with gun violence. So we need that money to go into NIH and CDC in addition to the Department of Justice. So we asked for that in our op-ed. We asked to remove the restrictions that don't, that restrict um, researchers to have access to data to, you know, firearm background checks that I have to, you know, I won't go into the details, but trust me that there's restrictions. Uh, so so we, we argued 
we have to go further. It's a health problem. If you think about it, my background is trauma resuscitation, critical care. When you're shot, you come into a hospital, just like when you have a heart attack, you come into the hospital. And, you know, that makes it a health problem. So we have to address that. The other point we made in the op-ed was um, we have a model and we need to understand this because in 1936, I was not alive then, I will just say that. In 1936, President Roosevelt, FDR, on January 1st, wrote a piece in Reader's Digest. I think Reader's Digest was sort of like the Twitter of the, although with more characters, but was the, the Twitter of the 1930s. Everybody read Reader's Digest. And in that he called the nation to take action and to take action against car crashes that were killing Americans, that it was a huge public health issue. And he said, I'm calling you to action. We need to decrease death by car. This is what we need to do. And the reality is we were successful because by the end of the 20th century, it was one of the top 10 public health successes to decrease death by car. And I use that, that's a great example because we live in a world with a lot of cars. So we didn't get rid of cars. We changed behaviors, we changed environments, we changed car design, we changed, uh, you know, you drive down the road and you have rumble strips so that if you fall asleep, the rumble strip on the right-hand side of the road wakes you up. So we took a multifaceted approach to decrease death by car. So if we choose to live with, in a world with cars and we can decrease death and we can create safe environments, we choose to live in a world with guns and we can keep communities safe by using that as a model, by saying, it's not all about, do I have a gun or not? It's about behavior, it's about environment, it's about design, it's a multifaceted thing. And if we can do that with cars, we can do that with guns. I have so many questions I wanna ask you about. If you even think it'd be possible to control guns the way that we control cars because people are so viscerally react to any kind of restrictions around guns more so than almost anything else maybe the vaccine now but all right is it possible uh, to do that i go between optimism and pessimism because it's such a highly politicized topic in this country but here's why i'm optimistic i'm optimistic because one of the things that we can do as nurses is to say, I care about safety. All I want to do is keep people safe so we can change the conversation. So instead, I'm not pro-gun or anti-gun. I'm actually a pragmatist. We've chosen to live in a world with guns. How do we do somewhere safely? And I think if we can change the conversation, we can start moving forward. 
And we did that successfully in the early years of getting the National Violent Death Reporting System funded through the Senate and Congress, where the head of the Appropriations Subcommittee for Healthcare was Senator Specter at the time, who uh, uh, had an A-plus rating from the NRA. And we were asking him to put in the budget $10 million to pilot the National Violent Death Reporting System. And I'm in his office and I say, and I'm with my colleague, Bill Schwab. We say, we're asking for $10 million, not for us, not for our research, not for Penn, but for the CDC. And, and this is why. And the first thing the chief of staff asked, said, was this is all about gun control, isn't it? And this is where I love being a nurse. So I said to her, you know what? I'm only a nurse. I'm not a second amendment scholar. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. All I really wanna do is to keep people from being injured and keep people from dying. I wanna keep people safe. Are you saying you don't wanna do that? And that reboots the conversation. Because first, I don't think a politician is going to say, no, I don't want to keep my constituents safe. But it takes it away from pro-gun, anti-gun, is how do we come together to keep people safe? So for people who are listening to this podcast, so this is what you can do. Find common ground. Don't engage in pro-gun, anti-gun. Find common ground. Separate, separate the facts from opinions. We know that that has been extremely hard. I know we talk about fake news, but I want us to think, and especially nurses to think, here are the facts, this is my opinion. The facts may stay the same, right? Because facts are facts. Opinions may differ, but let's differentiate that. The other thing I would like people to remember is words matter. Words matter. So just move away from pro-gun, anti-gun. Move towards how do we keep people safe. Be inclusive of people whose viewpoints are different than yours and keep the conversation going. And, and I, I think if we do that, there's the opportunity to move forward. So I know you've just been appointed to the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine's Board on Population Health and Public Health Practice. Is that the area that you're going to be focusing on? Is it for gun violence? No, it's a broad issue of public health concern. So, um, and it's not what I focus on, it's what the board focuses on. So this board focuses on broad areas of importance uh, to public health and public health prop population health and public health practice, such as vaccinations, such as health equity issues. So broad issues. So certainly gun violence may be one of those issues, but it's broad issues. Well, congratulations. And I'm glad there's a nurse on that board. I think there's two nurses on it. We, I haven't met yet with the group, but there's two nurses. That's great. There, yeah. there, there should be even more. I don't know how many people are on that board, but <laughs> there should always be more. Okay, so let's let's end the podcast on a lighter note. So you have been a very big champion of 
helping Penn Nursing, and I would say the nursing profession in general, move towards nurse-led innovation in a variety of ways. Can you talk about why years ago you saw this as a space that nurses should be leading in? The short, easy answer is I think nurses should be at the forefront of everything. So, so let me just say that. Uh, a slightly deeper answer is, you know, I was decades as a clinician, working with really difficult clinical situations and saw every day how creative nurses were and every day how we had to solve problems. So, you know, when everybody's there nine to five, Monday through Friday is very different than three o'clock in the morning uh, on a Friday night or a Saturday night or a Sunday night where you need to figure it out. Um, so I saw really creative solutions. When I took this position as Associate Dean for Research and Innovation, I actually said in my interview for this position, I have the research thing nailed, but I really don't know anything about innovation. So I'm just being, you know, truth and advertising here. I, I, I probably did, but I didn't. And it was interesting as I talked to people, uh, people defined innovation differently. So is it technology? Is it tech transfer? Is it intellectual property? Is it creativity? Is it identifying problems that people live with and then trying to design and solve them. So, you know, once I figured out that uh, it's all of the above, but I think the sweet spot for us is as nurses is I'm going back to the human connection is once you get the human connection, once you see problems through other people's eyes and understand what they live with, then it's like, okay, how can we come together and design solutions? So that's, that's one thing. We had a board of advisors at Penn Nursing who really got innovation. A lot came from the business world and it was like, what are we doing? And I, you can't talk about innovation at Penn Nursing without talking about our board of advisors. And then the third thing is Mary and Larry showed up, you know, who, who lives and breathes innovation. So it's finding the right people with the right mindset, the willingness to, I wouldn't say take chances, but to move forward and not be fearful to move forward and course correct, you know, as, as we do it. I, I think all of that is, is what made, I think is making us successful in that innovation space. Where do you see innovation going in the field of nursing? Do you think it's just a fad or do you think that this is something that really curriculum should be focusing on at all levels, undergrad through doctoral level programs? I don't think it's just a fad. I think, I think the term innovation is widely used and overused probably, and is sort of the word of the day, but that's a word. That's not, that's not the, um, the mindset. I can't project a future in nursing where 
if I leave the word innovation out, where nurses aren't committed to figuring out the problems, really understanding the problems, being willing to say, I'm going to figure out how to solve it and move that forward and just keep working at it and course correcting as I'm solving that problem. I can't imagine a future in nursing without that. Whether we call it innovation or creativity or purplicious or whatever we call it, that's who nurses are. And I think um, the critical aspect of having it in curriculum for nurses is we want, just like I think about sort of the rigor systematic approach to research, we want a different but equally rigorous and systematic approach to innovation so that it's not just the one-off so that we can solve something, we can scale it up and we can sustain it over time. And that's a, that, that's an important piece of the toolbox that needs to be filled for nurses. Well, Dr. Terry Richman, it was an honor talking with you today. For full disclosure, everyone, Terry is my boss and I <laughs> love working with her. Um, it is so much fun, a lot of joy and a lot of innovation happens through our work. So I really appreciate it. And this was just an incredible conversation. So thank you. Well, this was fun. I love doing this and uh, love talking about things we care about. Hello, Marion. Hello, Angela. How's it going? Amazing. How are you? I am good. I really enjoyed my conversation with my colleague and boss, Dr. Terry Richman, who is just doing phenomenal work in trauma and gun violence research. Yes, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. As you said, Terry is a phenomenal storyteller. And I felt like her perspective into nursing and how she came to be doing what she's doing now had such a great flow to it. And as a trauma nurse, listening to her talk about how when she worked in trauma and she started to get curious about what happens outside and what happens once patients leave her and, you know, what kind of support were they not getting? That was something that when I was a trauma nurse, it didn't occur to me. You know, and I, I had the unfortunate experience. I worked in a trauma center that it was in a very impoverished part of the city. And we would often have people that would come back to us after traumatic events, you know, and I was always kind of like, wow, they, we patched them up. They, they suffered this huge catastrophic event and we put them back together and back out into the world. And instead of starting over and doing something different, they're doing the same thing all over again. And having her talk about her experience and, and acknowledging the fact that there are so many different opportunities out there that other people, especially people of color, especially people in impoverished neighborhoods don't have. Yeah. And Terry talks about that really well, right? Like the privileges that different populations have, different people have, and choices aren't always the same. And so as practitioners, we need to really understand that. We've had this conversation, right? Patients are patients for a small period of time. And that's exactly what she's talking about, right? And then they leave the hospital and they go out into their world and 
we have to consider what else is going on. That holistic human-centered view of their lives, because they will then, like you were saying, come back. Because if we don't fix, if we don't help them heal in all those different ways, physically, mentally, socially, then they will, you know, people will then keep coming back. And we have to figure out as a healthcare system how to heal them in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. You know, especially when you're talking about trauma, it's not just that, that physical piece of it. There's so much, so much that goes on. And I don't think that our healthcare system set up as it is, is equipped to deal with it in a real, in a really effective way. It's not. And Terry says, science without humanity will never equal quality care. It Mm. is up to us as the providers to figure out a way to provide holistic quality care to all of our patients, whether they're in the hospital or discharged home into their communities. How can we provide quality care that runs the entire gamut of their lives? Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa Donato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can, please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.